certainly one of the reasons I think we struggle collectively with vulnerability is there hasn't been culturally, um, societally, that's a word, we haven't, uh, we haven't seen a lot of that. And so by the time we're adults, we're having to unlearn what it means to be vulnerable. Um, we're having to unlearn our feelings and our thoughts about sharing our struggles publicly. This is the CBF Podcast Conversations. Each week, we are bringing you stories from across the world of people doing groundbreaking and innovative work in renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and creativity from practitioners, ministers, thinkers, authors, and more. I'm Andy Hale, your podcast host. We're excited about another year of delivering interviews worth your time, attention, and collaboration. This platform is not designed for you to listen on an island unto yourself. Share your insights, thoughts, and feedback from the podcast with us on CBF's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. We also want you to join the CBF podcast community through our CBF podcast listener support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. We see you, Tucker, Georgia. Warsaw, Poland, San Francisco, California, and Sydney, Australia. First-time listeners and long-time listeners, we are grateful you are here for the conversation. We also want to give a special shout-out to some of our podcast listener supporters, including Carson Fushi, Cindy Foldendor, Bill Johnson, Ralph Stocks, and that anonymous person that keeps giving a gift in honor of CBF. And before we move on, we want to give a word of gratitude to our three annual sponsors, the Center for Congregational Health, McAfee's School of Theology Doctorate and Ministry Program, and the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. And now, on to our conversation. This podcast is presented to you by the Center for Congregational Health, whose mission is to help faith communities and their leaders thrive. Healthy congregations can transform their communities to be more compassionate, faithful, and just. Utilizing a network of highly skilled coaches, consultants, and intentional interim ministers, the Center supports congregations and ministry leaders to address the challenges they face. Visit their website, healthychurch.org, to learn more about how the Center can be your trusted partner in ministry. Our guest for this week's CBF podcast conversation is Dr. Peace Amadi. She is an associate professor of psychology and counseling, along with a professor of leadership at Hope International University. You can add writer, speaker, content creator, TV host, and coach to her list of accomplishments. Peace, thank you for joining the conversation. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Andy. So my first question is a bit selfish. As I sit here in Louisiana on a day that uh, feels like 101 with a nearly 100% humidity level. I'm wondering if you would describe what the weather's like in Southern California today. <laughs> so that I can make you more jealous. <laughs> yes, I will happily be jealous uh, thinking about what others are experiencing right now. Um, it's beautiful. I can't lie. We're, I think we're high 70s today. I'm looking at my window, the, the clouds are extra white. Um, <laughs> I, don't, <laughs> I don't have, um, AC or a heater on. It's just kind of perfect right now, to be honest, beautiful, bright, just 
typical California. Wow. <laughs> yeah, you guys might be the one exception. I was uh, listening to a, a report on NPR yesterday that they're talking about like even Maine is seizing unseasonably high uh, weather. They actually sent kids home from school because they didn't have ACs in the schools because they never need it. And it was uh, in the 90s there. So, uh, so good for you. Good for you. <laughs> um, you know, you, you, you have over 40,000 followers on social media. It could be said that people know a lot about you, but behind the doctor to psychology, the Instagram influencing and the writing, what would you want people to know about you? Oh, I love this question. I, I think I'd want people to know that I am still figuring a lot of things out just like everybody else. Yes, I have I have a mastery in in certain things. I certainly have, you know, mastery and and tools to sort of deal with the the, you know, mind traps and, you know, mental hang-ups and difficult emotions and which is why I wrote this book because I do have the tools to share. But this is definitely not me coming out and saying, oh, all of this is behind me. Like, I don't deal with anxiety anymore. I don't deal with depression anymore. You know, I, you know, don't cry myself to sleep um, ever. Um, I think that's what I want people to know. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm just, you know, I'm just one of the girls, you know, friend to all of the guys <laughs> and um, figuring out this journey along with everyone else. So we, we are a culture that's both obsessed with others' lives. We will quite literally follow thousands of people on social media postings throughout the day as if we need to know where she's eating for lunch or how he feels about a politician. And we are also a culture who doesn't really listen to the needs of others. You know, the field of psychology is all about listening to people's stories. So tell us about your sense of calling to this vocation. Yeah, you know stories stories are everything I, uh, I five years ago I, I not five years ago we ran it for five years to 2012 I started a nonprofit that was all about listening to um, the stories of young women who had trauma backgrounds themselves so we and these were these were teenage this was at the teenage age so we had girls from 13 to about 2021, 20, and we invited them to the summer camp that we were doing. It was called the Ruby Project. Should have started with that. Um, but they all had different stories. So we had girls who had been physically abused, sexually abused, um, a girl who had survived human trafficking and actually had a son from her pimp that, you know, you know, she he, he's in jail and she's raising um her son and he's actually about the age where she's probably gonna have to start telling him like answering some of his questions about his dad so you know we're rallying around her um but at the heart of it was really listening to their stories um not to fix them because stories can't be fixed but stories can be retold um a lot of times when we a lot of times when we think back on the things that we have endured, that we've gone through, which these girls did, and which was the heart of the, of the summer camp, we often tell the story as 
um, we were uh, we were at fault or we were defeated or you know we were you know the victim um, which we were but we were also the survivor um, you know we also survived things that you know some people don't and that is incredible and there's healing that can begin just around how you begin to tell your story how you begin to look back on what happened to you even how you look at god um and you know where you think he might have been when you were going through that and so um stories i deal a lot with stories i deal a lot with how to tell your story in a way where you are truly the survivor and you really in, in addition to unpacking the the pain and the trauma and the really hard yucky stuff that's left with you um, you're also starting to see yourself in a new light um, and in a way that it could actually become your superpower um, I, I often say that our our struggles um, our adversities, our, our, our traumas, our vulnerabilities, our sensitivities um, are or can become our superpower. There's a way to unpack our stories and tell our stories in a way where <clears throat> that truly feels real to us and we can truly do some really powerful things out of what we've been through. So um, this is kind of a long-winded <laughs> answer to your question, but I, I, I don't, I can't explain my draw to this work. I can only say that it's what I've been obsessed with um, since I can remember, um, since high school. I just loved listening to people's stories. Um, and I, I would, I witnessed how powerful it was for the person to just be able to share them with me, someone in high school who didn't really have much to say at that point. <clears throat> it was just really powerful for them to share. And I also noticed that people were drawn to sharing their stories, particularly with me. So I'm like, oh, there's something here. And so I just followed that, you know, pursued uh, psychology in, um, in um, uh, college, you know, got my master's and doctorate and have just built a career, um, a multi-focused career out of telling stories and listening to stories and helping people retell their stories and just seeing themselves, their world and their God anew. You have a new book out. Uh, why do I feel like this? This book is an invitation to understand deeply our difficult emotions. You wrote, as a culture, we are obsessed with happiness. Happiness is a beautiful, wonderful, healthy thing, but so is sadness. The pressure we put on ourselves to be happy all the time is not only unrealistic, it's unhealthy. What's the, what's the story behind writing this book? Mm. Yeah, um, the story behind writing this book is that I witnessed, experienced, saw, observed that people collectively, and for some reason, particularly people of faith, had sort of this um, almost antagonistic relationship towards their emotions. Um, it just, there was sort of a shame that I saw people were experiencing around feeling things like sadness or depression or anxiety. Um, and, and, you know, 
I have thoughts about where that comes from. I, I, I do believe there's been less than helpful takes on certain scriptures and certain ideologies that have led us collectively as a church to believe that our emotions, our difficult emotions, our dark emotions aren't okay, um, that they're a sin, um, that as soon as we feel them, we need to you know, find our way back to happiness and celebration and all of that. And psychologically, which you know, God is, god of our psychology as well not just our spirituality i mean he's you know he's the god of our our mind our hearts our souls our our, our everything um psychologically it it just doesn't not only does it not make sense it's not helpful it's actually harmful to sort of bypass which i get into in the book as well bypass some of our difficult emotions um and i think people really miss that God gave us these emotions, you know, God designed us to experience all of our emotions and everything God creates. Um, I have a little bit different take on everything that happens, but everything that God creates has a purpose and that includes our emotions. And so sadness is an emotion that we were designed to experience. Um, because we experience them, uh, we experience it. And I wrote this book because I wanted to invite people to consider what that was about. I wanted to invite people to consider that these emotions like sadness had a reason, um, had a purpose, had a message, um, had, you know, wanted to teach us something about ourselves. Um, Sadness in particular is, like I said in the book, is beautiful and reflects back to us what's important in our lives. And then from that, you know, we can go a couple different directions when we realize what's important. But yeah, it reflects what's important in our lives. And it's a response typically to a loss. And this is all normal, natural, healthy, productive stuff. This is all a healthy, productive process for us to feel sad after something we've lost and to reflect on why, and then to maybe make anywhere from minor to major shifts in our lives because we've realized what's truly important for us. And so I wanted people to reconsider um, feeling shame or feeling um, embarrassment or, or feeling a disgust or feeling like a, a, a discomfort around some of our most normal, important, um, productive emotions like sadness. There's a quote from the book. I would tell you that you are brave for acknowledging the ugly stuff. I would help you see the strength in your vulnerability because I am all about talking about the sting of all things. That sting is a pain of toxic shame and there's no place for it in your healing. Why do you think vulnerability is so difficult personally, let alone in community with others? Yeah, so I think there's a few reasons for that, um, but I think one of the main ones is that we do what we're taught. We do what we're told. Um, we're 
environmental creatures, we're social creatures, and you know, we're literally raised according to what we see growing up, to what is modeled. Um, we don't do what is not modeled. Um, this is generally speaking, and we get to an age where we can sort of like intervene. Um, but generally speaking, we're just sort of copycats of what's in our environment. And vulnerability isn't, it's often not one of those things that is modeled well. Um, you know, we don't get to hear a lot of the vulnerability of our parents um, or teachers or other important figures in our life. And there's probably some good reason for that to an extent, but it leaves, it leaves um, the average kid, the average teenager, the average young adult feeling like it's not okay to share your struggles. Um, it's not okay to, you know, share your difficult, um, dark feelings. Like you're not supposed to feel these things. Or I think that's the takeaway uh, because people don't share this because I haven't seen anybody share this is probably because I'm not supposed to feel this. You know, that's the typical takeaway when you don't see something being done, when something isn't normalized. So certainly one of the reasons I think we struggle collectively with vulnerability is there hasn't been culturally, um, societally, that's a word, we haven't, um, we haven't seen a lot of that. And so by the time we're adults, we're having to unlearn what it means to be vulnerable. Um, we're having to unlearn our feelings and our thoughts about sharing our struggles publicly. Um, yeah, I talk in the book about uh, later, because that's a quote from earlier in the book, but later in the book in my chapter on shame, I talk about uh, family rules, family of origin rules. And, you know, I was reflecting on, I grew up in a, in a beautiful family, great parents, you know, um, great siblings. Of course, nobody's perfect. Um, but overall, people would say, yeah, you, you know, you, you were blessed. Um, but that said, we still had our own unspoken family rules that I feel like, oh, that kind of impacted me and I need to unlearn that. And one example of that was just how we dealt with failure, you know, and I remember there was times where we failed. I mean, this is like small failures, like kid, you know, sports or maybe, you know, a less, you know, not an A or, or something. And it was, a, it was very like, we don't tell people, we don't tell people that we, you know, like we fell short. We don't tell people that we made a mistake. We, we keep that in the family. We keep that to ourselves. And um, I, I understand the heart of that, you know, it's kind of like wanting to be protective of yourself and you, you can't really trust people's, you know, motivations all the time or what they'll do with your failure. But at the end of the day, I realized that that sort of hush-hush around failure um, made me really like nervous and um, self-conscious and like not prone to sharing when I was falling short or, or I was struggling. And I had, it took kind of years to unlearn that, to unlearn that it's okay to share where I failed or where I have fallen short, where I am falling short, um, what I am struggling with, not, 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 not only is it okay, it's powerful. It's powerful for me. It's powerful for whoever might be listening. It's transformative. It's healthy, you know, and that's just something I think, you know, my family just did 
just because they thought that that's how you do, you know, that's what you do. That's how you treat stuff. But in reality, um, it, it's far less helpful to be hush hush about your failures than it is to just share and be vulnerable. So certainly what is modeled to us and kind of the takeaways from what we don't see growing up, I think has a lot to do with why we struggle with vulnerability. Are you interested in theological education, but not ready or able to commit to a fully Master of Divinity degree? BSK now offers two certificates that focus on general ministry training. The Exploring Ministry Certificates, Levels 1 and 2, will be available beginning this fall, including course options such as Introduction to Pastoral Care, The Black Church in America, and an Invitation to Christian Theology. These certificates provide options for your area of interest. BSK certificates only require students to take three courses, and certificates count towards the Master of Divinity. If you or someone you know is interested in learning more about these certificates, visit bsk.edu. Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. Well, you know, one of the places that's very difficult for people to be vulnerable is the church. And for many of us that grew up in the church, we inherited a culture that wasn't necessarily equipped to prepare people to deal with their emotions, let alone receive people's emotions uh, that didn't appear, you know, perfect and everything was well. Uh, you know, instead, um, you, you write about um, being given spiritual bypasses to belittle our needs, feelings, and our personal challenges. You wrote, uh, it's when we dole out Christian platitudes and expect the recipients of the easier said than done words to bounce right back into contentment and happiness. It's the equivalent of slapping a fresh cut with a bandage and hoping that any sign of infection will resolve without additional effort we and our emotions deserve better. Take us a little deeper here. Yeah. That was, I, I, was, I was so glad <laughs> to include that chapter. And I know that I, I want to talk so much more about spiritual bypassing and, and, you know, pray for the opportunity to. So thank you for this question. But, you know, there's just a way healing works and there's a way that it doesn't work. And that's just, I mean, I'm very, in general, as a person, my temperament, I'm very, um, in a sense, results focused. And by that, I mean, what's going to get you the result you want? Let's do that. But what's not going to get you the result you want? Let's stop doing that. And I feel like the church collectively, of course, there's exceptions to every rule, but I feel like the church collectively has just not um, traditionally done a great job of literally helping people heal mentally and emotionally. Spiritually, you know, we're, we're genuinely doing great. 
you know, helping people understand what their purpose may be, helping people understand how to, you know, bring people into the fold when it comes to, you know, um, community and, you know, developing a relationship with God, discipleship, all of that, but just people not doing well mentally and emotionally, um, we've sucked, like we've sucked as a church. And, um, and the, the, the proof is in the fact that people mentally and emotionally um, are just getting more hurt by the type of responses they're hearing from their leaders or from their you know, fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And they're leaving the church because they're feeling dismissed. They're feeling minimized. They're feeling judged. They're feeling you know, terrible, sinful. They're feeling like they don't have enough faith. They're feeling like they're missing something because they're just not able to snap back into that happy, you know, celebrating, rejoicing person that some of these Christian platitudes um, like expect people who are hurting um, to be. So, you know, I've watched this from the outside. Um, I've experienced this, you know, myself. I've, I've attended a lot of different churches. I mean, I'm, I'm a church girl at heart. So I'm not unfamiliar to church and church culture. And um, it's been a huge part of my growth and me coming closer to God, but it's also been like a sore spot because I've even felt personally like, whoa, I'm coming to church. I'm struggling mentally, I'm struggling emotionally, I'm going through this problem um, and I'm, I'm supposed to, you know, believe that I can bring, what's the verse, like bring my burdens, you know, to, to God, my heavy burdens and, you know, he's supposed to help take it away and I'm coming to church and I'm now leaving feeling dismissed, judged, you know, feeling like I'm a terrible person, feeling like I don't have enough faith, all those things I was saying before and I'm like, something's wrong here something is wrong. And I, 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 it's, to me, it's just as simple as healing doesn't work that way. Healing isn't just a, just let it go that, you know, that doesn't heal people. <laughs> um, you know, just have more faith that doesn't heal people. Um, what heals people is acknowledging the depth of their pain, or at least what begins a healing journey is creating space for it is validating pain it's affirming pain it's it's telling you know people that they're not alone it's sharing times where you also have struggled and asked or asked the same questions you know someone else has asked about god it's connecting it's um creating a sense of belonging it's creating um permission to kind of let go, giving permission to kind of let go of all the things you thought and believed about the world and God so that someone can kind of rebuild a more um, meaningful, productive um, foundation. You know, it's literally giving people the space and time to sort of naturally find themselves back to God. Um, and that takes time, weeks, months, years. But the church wants it to happen overnight and it, it's just not how it works and it suffocates the process and what do you do when you're suffocating you want to let go or have that thing let go of you as soon as possible which is why i'm also um one of the classes i teach is um psychology and religion and 
oh, in one of the weeks, we look at the trends, the trends of um, church attendance and just across the board, across the nation, you know, people are leaving the church. I mean, we're seeing a decreasing influence in, um, of church. Um, and I, I don't think this is the only reason why that's happening. I, I think there's a lot of things going on, but I certainly do think it's one of the reasons why, because people are starting to have, you know, build an intelligence around their mental and emotional health and starting to notice that some of the things the church is doing is not helpful and is actually um, um, counterproductive to their health and healing goals. Theologically and I guess ecclesiologically, you know, what are some of the common obstacles you have faced as an expert of psychology when it comes to spiritual leaders and church people's response to the work of psychology and psychiatry, uh, mental health awareness? Yeah, so I think the main thing, the, or one, one of the bigger things is this weird God or bust kind of thing, this either or kind of thing um, where it's like you either get your healing from God or you get your healing from something that's not God. Um, and um, which is weird to me because I'm looking at this like, this is all, this is all God. Um, God, I believe and stand on this, that God is the ultimate source of our healing. But I also believe and, and would imagine that if you really, if people thought about it, they would agree that God has given us, okay, so we have this understanding that God has chosen to work through people. We get this, you know, God, you know, gives his word through people. He gives his word through people. He prophesies through people. He um, encourages through people. I mean, why do we all go to church? Why do we all, you know, want to talk to our spiritual leaders? Because we have this sort of trust that we're ultimately hearing from God and he, but he's just choosing to work through this person. Um, mental health, psychology, to me, it's the exact same. Um, God is the ultimate source of healing, but he has created things like science, you know, behavioral science and tools and each other, you know, the, the brilliance and the wisdom and the encouragement and the affirmation of each other to help us heal. So I'm actually kind of stuck on how we got to this. It's God or bust, you know, um, we heal with God or we don't heal with God. Um, when to me, it's all God um, in his infinite brilliance and insight and foreknowledge of how this world was, you know, how, how the cookie was going to crumble, how this world was going to be, where people were going to struggle and him giving us so many options um, and help and support around how we can look at our mental health and, and heal where we need to heal. So theologically, I see no, I see zero conflict. <laughs> Personally, I've never seen conflict, which is why I happily found myself in the field of um, psychology and mental health. Um, but again, I think there's just been a little kind of warped just understanding of what it means to heal and where that comes from and what we're supposed to do when we're in pain. And I think we need to get out of talking, you know, super heavenly about things and just really 
<laughs> just really get into the the nitty gritty of like what it really means to you know heal your mind um you know the word tells us to renew our mind yes now what does that practically look like uh you know, psychology has a lot of great options for what that looks like. Um, doesn't take anything away from God. God gave us the science. So that, yeah, that's my response to that. You know, for a lot of people, that spiritual baggage of the mismanagement of people's very real emotions from spiritual leaders and within our soul can be a very difficult um, task to overcome. In fact, you know, all this can cover up or conceal our real beliefs about ourselves, you know, what we're feeling and how we respond. In your book, you talk about the importance of uncovering our core beliefs. You wrote, our thoughts affect our feelings, our feelings affect our behaviors, and our behaviors affect and further reinforce our thoughts. So, so what are some of those common core beliefs that people maybe don't realize are affecting their feelings and behaviors? Yeah. Um, a big one for a lot of people is, you know, I'm not lovable. I'm difficult to love. I'm not worthy. Um, I think so core beliefs in general are beliefs about, uh, our like deep beliefs about ourselves, other people and the world. And in the book, I focus mostly on the beliefs we have about ourselves and a little bit of other people. And they just reflect our lovability and our capability. And then, you know, the degree to which people, the degree to which we believe people will show up for us. And so that all being said, the ones I've seen really affect people in their relationships, which is a big part of our life and our um, happiness and wholeness and success and all of that. Um, is just not feeling lovable, not feeling like they're good enough, not feeling like they're worthy enough. And so they make choices that reflect exactly what they believe about themselves. Um, and I can speak to this from a very personal level where I saw the biggest changes in my life, the biggest, you know, exponential growth, exponential um, platforming, you know, which I know came from God, exponential impact and influence when I started to believe that I was just good enough to talk about things, good enough to write about things, good enough to share about things, um, saw, you know, exponential differences in the type of relationships I entertained, both in friendship and the people I uh, chose to date, you know, this was all like different seasons in my life, when I just learned I was better than what I was allowing into my life. And so I think our lives, not I think, our lives reflect the beliefs we have about ourselves. They reflect the beliefs we have about other people, um, which all come from somewhere. They all come from childhood. There's, all, there's a reason why we believe the things we believe. But as adults, we have a lot more agency. We have a lot more control. We have a lot more power. And so it starts with being aware of these beliefs that we hold deep down and the, the way to begin to get in touch with those is to look at our lives, actually. You know, what are your, your, your patterns <laughs> will tell on you. You know, the people you're choosing to date will tell on you. The type of friends you keep will tell on you. Your ability to go after your goals and dreams will tell on you. It will tell you everything you know, everything you need to know about what you're believing deep down in your core. 
Um, and so I'm really big on uncovering core beliefs and I'm actually shameless plug, but um, nothing's out yet. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to construct now something that will take people deeper into that work, um, maybe like a core belief boot camp or workshop or something where we will take that chapter of the book and like dive even deeper and actually like workshop some of our beliefs. Um, because from those who've read it, I'm getting a lot of feedback that that was a chapter that kind of blew their minds in the sense that just really opened their eyes to stuff they haven't realized before. So um, yeah, I, I'm looking forward to figuring that out and announcing that. And so anybody who's listening, definitely, you know, stay connected with me if you wanna do some more of that work. Um, but yeah, our lives reflect what we believe about ourselves deep down in our core. This pandemic has amplified some of our core beliefs and a lot of people, the numbers on depression and anxiety rates have skyrocketed and rightly so. In the book, you talk about the need for security as one of the primary causations of anxiety. And this might seem like a dumb question, but throughout this pandemic, what do you think has led most people to feel insecure? There, there are the obvious things such as you know potential job loss or actual job loss, financial instability, sickness, and death. But but emotionally, what's behind all this? Yeah. Um. So yes, in the book, I talk about how anxiety, simply put, the way I love to talk about it is anxiety is anything we we anxiety is what we feel when we don't feel safe and the pandemic this you know this past year and a half has created um a sense of you know like unsafety um and that I'll, I'll say this that you know what helps kind of fill in that picture a little bit is that we as humans we have an intense need for control like we need to feel like we are in control of our lives you know, our fate, our destiny, whatever the case may be. Um, and whether that tr control is actually real control or just an illusion of control, it actually doesn't matter. We just need to feel it. It's another thing I talk about in my second religion class, actually, as I'm thinking about it and my students get, they get real buzzy when we talk about this because it, it hits home. Like we need to feel like we're in control or else we feel lost. We feel very unsafe. And part of that feeling of control actually comes from predictability. There's something very um, comforting about knowing what's coming next. Um, predictability makes us feel safe whether it's actually making us safe or not is you know another question probably existential question existential question but needing to know what's coming next um, is a big deal for us and so this past year and a half that's what's been attacked there's been no predictability i feel like we're even though we're coming out of the pandemic it's still a lot of what's happened, you know, what, what's truly going to happen next, you know, the, the, all the conversations we're having about the vaccine. I mean, I just got vaccinated myself and I'm, I've caught myself thinking, okay, feel fine now. And I've, I've trusted, you know, what's been done, but like 10 years from now, am I still going to be all right? Or am I going to be growing like a sixth arm? Like, I don't know, <laughs> you know, I mean, I'm being facetious, but, um, predictability is what, um, makes us feel safe and, unpredictability, if that's the right word, um, 
makes us feel not safe. And so I think that's what's been at the heart of a lot of people's anxiety is like a lack of predictability, um, uh, which which is a you know on a bigger level a lack of control, um, and all of that sort of threatens our sense of safety. So naturally, I, I, we've been struggling collectively as a society with anxiety and depression for a while. Um, for lots of different reasons, but the anxiety and the depression that has kind of, you know, escalated because of the pandemic, I think we'll begin to see a little bit of it resolve. Um, you know, for those that it's related strictly to the pandemic, I think we're going to see a little bit resolve, a little bit of it alleviate just by reestablishing a sense of control and predictability in our lives again, getting back to our routines, you know, people going to the gym, people going to their churches, going, going to whatever makes them feel like, okay, this life is mine, I'm in control, I know what's happening next, I create it, you know, I have a plan for if things go left or right or whatever. I think we're going to see some, you know, alleviation because just, just by virtue of like getting back into, um, a predictable living. Um, yeah. Yeah. So anxiety in general, it being something we feel when we don't feel safe. Um, it's one of the reasons why developing routines for your life, um, can be really, really helpful um particularly if you're you know well that said anxiety could also be pointing back to like unresolved traumas and all that stuff but you know it doesn't hurt anybody to try and see if establishing a routine morning routine day routine night routine um just lifestyle routine to see if that helps alleviate some of that anxiety i want to return to um the quote I read when introducing the book, as a culture, we are obsessed with happiness. Happiness is a beautiful, wonderful, healthy thing, but so is sadness. The pressure we put on ourselves to be happy all the time is not only unrealistic, it's unhealthy. Why do you think our, our culture has such an inclination towards um, amplifying certain types of emotions and diminishing others? That's a great question. You know, I think that's one of those questions where I can truly say, I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure how we got there. Um, I think there's, there's a sense that people want to be happy. You know, happiness feels really good. Um, and I think a part of it is literally just like consumerism. Like, you know, people want to feel happy. Happiness feels really good. So I'm going to create, or we're going to, let's create a bunch of products that help people feel really good because they're going to spend all their money on feeling really good. So I, I think, I think there's probably a, a bunch of different answers. I think there's probably some deep answers, some super deep, you know, psycho, psychic answers. Um, but I also think there's probably just an exploitation, honestly, um, of, you know, what, um, you know, what has been learned about people and like what we want. We don't always know what's best for us, you know? And so it's like, happiness feels good. You know, those who see an opportunity to make money will, will make money. 
or will at least like press into that for, you know, because they feel like that's their purpose. Um, but just because that's the popular thing and the popular ideology and the, the thing that, you know, drives consumerism doesn't mean that it's the full picture. That's what I'll say to that. So what do you think it will take for us to create a you know, healthier vocabulary and acceptance of the wide range of human emotions, um, you know, within our culture, within, within the church, within our families. Yeah. It will take us talking about it. It will take us, um, normalizing it. It will take individuals, you know, who have the boldness and the courage to say, Hey, like this is what I'm feeling right now. And it's not a great feeling, but I understand that it's trying to tell me something. I understand that there's a message here, that there's meaning here, that there's maybe even a purpose for this. Um, and I'm, I'm willing to listen to it. And I would like your support in like helping me listen to it and, and helping me be with this feeling and helping me understand what it's trying to tell me. You know, I think it will take bold and courageous people talking more freely about the full uh, context of their emotions to kind of inspire others to do the same. And I think that's starting to happen to a, to a um, degree culturally. I would like to see that actually more in the church. And all it takes is one person. All it starts with one courageous person doing it. You get, you know, people, your friends to do it, your community to do it, um, your communities, family members to do it. And it's just this uh, ripple effect that we can create just by being an, being an example ourselves. What's your hope for your readers? Mm, I love this question. My hope for my readers is to literally just embrace all of their emotion, to lean into them, to listen to them, to befriend them. Obviously my goal and my prayer isn't that you stay depressed, you know, forever and ever and ever. That's not what this is about, but I do want you not to be antagonistic towards yourself or your depression. I do want you to to see that as an opportunity to, to learn what you may need, to learn what may be missing, um, to learn what's really going on inside your body, inside your heart, inside your mind, um, to take counsel, counseling, support, prayer, all of it, and to find your way you know, to healing. Um, and I say that about, I, I, I mean that about any of the emotional experiences I outline in the book. Um, we're not meant to be enemies with our difficult emotions and difficult emotional experiences. Um, they're companions to us, they're advocates for us actually. And so my hope is that that be the takeaway that people embrace their emotions in new ways, that they engage them, um, that they let that be the true start of their healing journey. And that as they heal, they give others the permission and freedom to heal as well. If you want to stay connected with Peace, check out her website, peaceamadi.com. Check out her posts on Instagram and Twitter. And of course, go out and purchase Why Do I Feel Like This, wherever books are sold. 
Peace, thank you for taking the time to have this conversation. We are grateful for your leadership in helping us feel connected and cared for, gaining insight and understanding into what we are feeling and experiencing. Thank you so much for having me, Andy. This is great. This podcast is presented to you by McAfee School of Theology at Mercer University, who exists to train ministers who inspire the church and the world to imagine, discover, and create God's future. Located in Atlanta, Georgia, the McAfee School of Theology offers doctoral and master's degree programs, including a fully online Master of Divinity degree, the only fully online MDiv offered by a national research university. You can visit their webpage, theology.mercer.edu, to learn more about their programs and scholarships. Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF's podcast on all major platforms, including iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcasts. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platforms. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites. Again, that's the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, the Center for Congregational Health, and McAvee School of Theology's Doctorate of Ministry program. Check out cbf.net for more information about our church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and much more. Oh, and I don't think we've mentioned this, that you should join the listener community at cbf.net backslash podcast support.